All of you, it's good to see you in worship today, and those of you joining us online, good to have you with us as well. I want to start this morning by reading the passage of Scripture that today's message is about. We're going to put the Scripture text up on the screen. This is from Micah chapter 6, verses 6 to 8. With what should I approach the Lord and bow down before God on high? Should I come before him entire, with entirely burnt offerings, with year-old calves, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or many torrents of oil? Should I give my oldest child for my crime, the fruit of my body for the sin of my spirit? He has told you, O human one, what is good and what the Lord requires from you, to do justice, embrace faithful love, and walk humbly with your God. Let's pray together. God, we pray that this day that you would open this scripture and this text up to us in a new way, that we would uh, apply it to our lives with a deep sense of purpose, knowing that you are calling upon us as your people to embody the virtues of life, justice, and mercy through the power and grace of Jesus Christ. For we pray all this in his name. And all God's people together said, amen, amen. I mentioned uh, last week in one of the worship services that I'm teaching a class this quarter at Seattle Pacific University. It's the foundations class. It's the You Found 1000. It's the very first class that many of the students will take on the Christian faith and tradition. And so I have about 30 students in my class, and we're talking through what it means to live out the Christian faith in today's world. We have a number of faculty in our congregation from the School of Theology that teach the very same class. And one of the books I'm asking all of my students to read in the class is this book here. This is Do I Stay Christian, written by Brian McLaren. I had a nice conversation with Pastor Mark Abbott, our former pastor here at First Free, and he shared with me that a good number of years ago, Brian McLaren spoke here on one occasion and was very, very well received. So I'm excited to have my students read this book. This is Brian's latest book, came out in May. And the, the book is divided into three parts. The first part, the first 10 chapters, are why one should not stay Christian. Yes, hard to say that. Why one should not stay Christian. And so it's 10 chapters about all the ways in which Christian communities throughout the centuries have failed to embody some of the very virtues we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. Virtues of life, virtue of justice, and even the virtue today we're going to speak of, of mercy. In the second part of the book, Brian turns to why we should stay Christian. What are some reasons why we need to continue in Christian community. And then in the last part of the book, he lifts up ways we can do that. In other words, how we can live out a Christian faith in the 21st century that's powerful and meaningful. Uh, you may not agree with everything that Brian McLaren writes in his book. I don't necessarily agree with everything that's there, but I would suggest that this book gives us a, an opportunity to have some hard conversations. And that's why I've asked my class to read it. I asked them to read it because I wanted them to have some safety to talk about some of the things that Christians seemingly just don't get right. Some of the things we just don't get right. And we've not gotten them right for a long time. So we need a little bit of freedom to have that conversation, and Brian's book allows us to do that. And then we can move on and talk about how we can build a Christian faith that's reflective of the time we live together. The class that I teach has a minority of Christians in it. 
most of the students in my class come from different religious backgrounds that are not part of being a devout Christian community. I have several uh, Muslim students in my class. I have a couple of Roman Catholics. I have some uh, who are lapsed to some degree. I've got folks of all different walks of life that are in my course. So it's, it's an interesting group. And I have to tell you, I give thanks to God for them. They are a fantastic group of young people who are exploring and wondering and poking and prodding and asking good questions, especially of us in the Christian community. When we read those opening chapters in McLaren's book, it seems to make clear that there's lots of ways in which Christians have not embodied mercy or justice in the world today. And so I wonder, how is it we can learn to live a life that's a little bit, a little bit different? Live a life that is distinct and peculiar. It, there's in some sense the way the church is called to embody these values that we've talked about so far, life, justice, and mercy, in such a peculiar way that it causes people to ask questions, that the way we hold those values would be ones in which people would be amazed about how we hold those things, and they might ask us, why is it you live like this? Why is it you have such values about life or justice or mercy? And that's a little bit of what I want to explore today and how we can become that kind of people. Another book that I appreciate very much that I've read uh, quite a few times over the last several years is written by Norm Wiersbe, and the book is called The Way of Love. And in Wiersbe's book, he simply suggests that the, the model of the church today is to be a school of love. It's the place where we come and we learn and are transformed in our discipleship so that we might be the kind of community that expresses God's love in the world in such a way that's compelling, that invites questions, that invites curiosity into that kind of conversation. What we learn from the prophet Micah is this, in this passage of scripture, when we're talking about how we can be transformed into this way of love is this, is that when we treat God like a transaction, we miss the opportunity for transformation. When we treat God like a transaction, we miss the opportunity for transformation. Let's talk about the first half of that sentence, when we treat God like a transaction. Micah was a prophet in the 8th century, which means in the 700s uh, BCE. So um, he was a prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, Israel had split into two parts by then. There were the northern ten tribes, the southern two tribes. He was a prophet to those ten northern tribes shortly before they were conquered by the Assyrian Empire in 722 under the leadership of the Assyrian king and general Sennacherib. Now, I say all of that because these are a people who are kind of like near that point of going away as those 10 northern tribes of Israel. They're at the point of evaporating. And so Micah brings to them this important message about how they're called to live in just ways. Now, when we read Micah before chapter 6, which we read a moment ago, we read about all the things that Israel, well, was maybe not doing as well as they could have. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 2, here's the hit list. Landowners were looking to gobble up small farmers. In chapter 2, verse 9, women and young children evicted from their homes. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, we read of political leaders out of touch with people to stay in power. Chapter 3, verse 10, the exploitation of cheap labor. Chapter 3, verse 11, courts that are corrupt with bribery and scandal. Chapter 3, verse 5, priests and prophets that are compliant with greed. Is this Micah or is this the New York Times? Which one is it? 
It seems like after all of these centuries have passed, about 27 of them now, we still haven't quite figured out yet how to answer some of these difficult social questions that face us as a Christian community even. But I think there are ways in which these, these issues trouble us in a deeper way because we might ask, well, what do we do to solve this? And oftentimes what we do to solve these types of problems is we try to manage them. And this is what Micah is trying to get at. Micah chapter 6, verses 6 and 7 says, well, what should I come to the Lord with? A bunch of burnt offerings. How about a thousand rams? What if I brought an offering of rivers of oil? Would that make up for what we've done? It's a rhetorical question, and Micah even goes so far as to say, should we bring our firstborn and sacrifice them? like all of the other religious traditions around us do in that particular day. What Micah is suggesting is that the people of Israel have engaged in a transaction with God, that they've done all of these unjust and unmerciful things, and they're asking themselves, well, what do we do to fix that? What do we do to make that right? And what they're missing is the transformation that needs to take place in their life. They're just treating it like a transaction. How do I get A? for B. What's the swap supposed to be between us and between God? There's another description we have for it. We call it sin management. It's not really where we seek to transform our lives or our behavior or seek the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. It's just simply one in which we say, well, I'm doing these things I don't like to do, so how do I manage those better? How do I develop new habits? How do I do all those different things. You know, as human beings, we're plagued in many of the ways as the people in Micah's day were plagued, but we're plagued in a bit of a different sort of way. There's ways in which we engage in abuse, either by perpetrating it or being the recipient of it. There are ways in which we speak with harshness to one another in somewhat caustic language at times. There are ways in which we, we've not really died dived into the role that addiction plays in our lives, whether it be to alcohol or to substances or to so many of the other things that seemingly control who we are as a people. Not to mention dependency, being in relationships that are broken, or even codependency, the myth that we know how to fix everybody around us. Do you know that 38.5% of all people make a New Year's resolution? And within the first week, 23% of them quit. That was two weeks ago when 23% of the people quit. Actually, 9% of the people keep a New Year's resolution. In in some ways, New Year's resolutions are a bit like the, uh, the sin management problem. It's like I have these systemic things that I either have in my life or I want to fix in my life or I want to change in my life. And so folks kind of believe that I'm just going to resolve to fix it, and that is that. Well, 9% of the people actually have the capacity to do that kind of work, whereas many others don't and live with that reality each and every day. So I woke up on January 2, and I realized I needed to shed some pounds So I'm one of the New Year's resolution people. How many of you are with me? A couple of you have the faint raising of hand, like, yeah, that could be me. 
But in some ways, as I try to go about that process, I realize that I'm just simply trying to manage the problem. There's got to be a way in which I'm transformed, a different way in which I'm renewed. Yeah, since the beginning of January, I've lost about 10 pounds. You probably wonder why Pastor Craig keeps wearing the same clothes all the time. It's the only, they are the only clothes that fit, my friends, that's all. 90% of my wardrobe sits in my closet looking very lovely, but it is not worn. I'm trying to find a new way of life and trying to experience transformation. But I, at the same time, as I listen to this text, I'm trying to ask the deep questions, deeper questions that might bring transformation and renewal into my life. And I hope these are questions that you might be asking in your life. This habit, this process, this thing that I seemingly can't get out of the way of, the same headlines that are true in the New York Times that are true in the book of Micah. How do we start to get out of that problem? And I'd suggest that managing our way out of it is not working out very well for us. There has to be a different way we do this. When I was preparing for this week's sermon, I read a fantastic passage from the Roman Catholic scholar Juan Alfaro, and he writes this. God does not want from the worshiper quality of things, but quality of life. The life of the worshiper is far more important than the acts of worship. Now, I'm going to let you read that to yourself just for a moment and reflect on that. Some questions we could wonder about this week are these. How does the lack of inner mercy from God or mercy toward ourselves keep us from practicing a merciful way of life? We're going to unpack that a little bit more in the next part of the, the sermon. But this question I think is important. is When does mercy making seem weak or uninformed? And why? There's a lot of... Uh, need for human beings right now to flex that they have power they have capacity they have agency but mercy is often perceived as weak it's perceived as being inferior what does that mean to us and why remember the sentence i shared at the beginning of the sermon we we're going to look at two halves of it the first one is we treat god like a transaction what do we need to do to fix this and when we treat God like a transaction, we might miss the opportunity for transformation. When I was reading Micah chapter 6, verse 8, which is a passage of Scripture that many people know, what does the Lord require of you? Three things. To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God, or variation thereof. It's a passage of Scripture that's well-worn. But when I was reading the text, I came into that first statement, do justice, processed that, read some scholars about that, and then I went to the next part where it says to love mercy, only to find that that's actually not the word for mercy. So I was confused. And so in the moment of my confusion, I reached out to a big gun to help me solve my problem as I was trying to understand Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And so I turned to Seattle Pacific University across the street and asked my friend Dr. Sarah Koenig to help me understand what this text is saying. Here she is. It's a pleasure today to be speaking with Dr. Sarah Koenig, who's the professor of biblical studies at Seattle Pacific University and seminary. And when I was looking at this text from Micah chapter 6, verse 8, 
um, Sarah was the first person who came to mind to ask a question I had as I was preparing the sermon. In Micah 6.8, which is a text very familiar to us, we find this idea of doing justice and loving mercy together, Dr. Koenig. And I'm hoping you can explain this a little bit better for us, that the doing of justice and the loving of mercy are related, but yet the doing of justice and the loving of mercy, that grammar is a little odd to me. The words that are used in Hebrew struck me in a way that I thought was really unusual that we should explore. So I'm hoping you can help make some sense of it, how these things are related and what it means to love mercy, even if that's the best word to use in that particular part of the text. Yeah, it's a great question because the word that gets translated as mercy in this verse is the Hebrew word chesed, which most often gets translated as steadfast love or loving kindness in a lot of translations. The word for mercy is the word rachamim. So typically that's a different word for mercy than gets used here in this particular verse. Um, chesed is one of those Hebrew words that it's hard to translate with a single word. Again, steadfast love or loving kindness gets at it. Um, a friend of mine said, chesed is the single word that describes God's relationship with God's people. So loyal, love, this covenant love that God has that cannot be broken. So to do that kind of literally, it could be, you know, do justice. That's, that's great in Micah 6, 8. But then loving, loving kindness or loving God's covenant loyalty is a little bit more what it gets at. And so, so the, but the connection between those justice and love, I think is a significant um, biblical truth about who God is. God is just and God is loving and merciful. And that's something that you don't get in a whole lot of other realms where these concepts are often put at odds with each other, especially even if we translate it as mercy, that a, a, a judge in a court can be just or they can be merciful, and it's hard to do both at the same time. And even if you think about other religions that have multiple gods, you have a god of justice and a god of love. And so the fact that in the Bible, these things are combined are really unique. So explore that a little bit further for me. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, it talks about this doing of justice then. What are some of the implications of that in that particular passage? of doing justice. I mean, and this is where in, in Micah, the, the commandment is for humans to do justice and also to love, love or love mercy. And um, I did a talk about this a while ago and was reflecting on how it might be easier for us as humans when we're being commanded to do these things to flip it, that it might be easier for me to love justice than to do justice. So I can be, I can love it when I see justice done, when, you know, someone gets what they deserve. And I can do mercy. I can choose to be merciful or even I can, I can choose to love if we want to translate it in that way. But I think it's harder to do justice than it is to love justice. I think it's harder to love 
mercy and love love than it is to do love. And so the fact that the verse is calling us to do what might not be as easy seems really profound for the life of faith. And of course, it's all connected with the, the third piece of it, to walk humbly with God. I'm, I'm convinced that when I walk with God in my life of discipleship, then these commands that are, that are hard to do become easier with the help of the Holy Spirit. Well, that's interesting. And as I've been thinking about this text and what you were just saying, one of the troubles I think we have sometimes is when we read a text like this, it's hard for us to interpret what it might mean today. How do we see examples of this today? So as you're thinking about Micah 6.8 and the doing justice, and especially that second part, which is literally love, loving kindness, where do you see anything in that spirit today? How does that live out in present day? Yeah, and specifically the loving of loving kindness. Um, you know, I think about... I think about my grandparents, and they're no longer living, but I think about my grandfather who was so committed in this relationship of love to his wife, my grandmother, the way he was caring for her in love over these years because he loved her. And that's what he said. He said, it's hard, and I'm doing it because I love her. So I'm loving her because I love her. And it gets lived out in actions as well. I also think for me it's theological that who is the one who practices, who, who, who does chesed the best? It's God. And so for me to love, love means that I love God's loving kindness toward me. And part of that is recognizing that I have been a recipient of that loving kindness. And I want to love it when God loves other people as well, even when I think they don't deserve it, when I think they deserve some more justice than love. Wow, that's, that's really an amazing thought about what it means to love the love of God extended to us. That's so rich. So the last question I ask you is related to that and to some degree. As, as Christian believers today, and we're looking at a text like this in Micah, to do justice, to love loving kindness, and to walk humbly with God, there's a lot of talk of justice today in the world and in our culture, and there's a lot of people who align around the cause of justice in your opinion for Christians, what are the questions that we need to hold? What are the things we need to be wondering about as we think about these ideas of justice and loving kindness and walking humbly? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, th I think we've talked about it a little bit already, and you mentioned it, that it may be easier to love the concept of justice and to be behind that. Justice is a great thing, but to ask the question of discipleship, how am I actually doing justice? What actions am I taking in my life that are just actions for others? And actually, I should talk a little bit more about justice as well, that this, this Hebrew word mishpat um, also has a sense of working for holistic good for people. And oftentimes it's really connected with shalom. And so an act of justice would be an act that would lead to peace and shalom and wholeness for someone, which I think is exciting because there's so many ways to do it, not just to be behind it, but to actually practice that in my life. So how can I be making those choices for doing something just that's going to make someone else's life more whole and complete. And again, how can I really live into this love of and acceptance of the incredible love of God that I've received and then also love that when other people receive that love and loyalty of God um, in their own lives and in the world? Oh, that's rich. 
Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Koenig. I appreciate your leadership, your scholarship, your commitment to Seattle Pacific, and the work that you continue to do with all of your students and with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's my pleasure. That was good, huh? I appreciate uh, Dr. Koenig so much and her scholarship, as I do many of the faculty in the School of Theology. They do fantastic work. I hope you grab the idea that she's trying to name about mercy. So oftentimes we translate that passage to do justice and love mercy. That's actually not the best way to frame it. It's to do justice and to love loving kindness and walk humbly with God. So if we start to understand it in that frame, we begin to imagine for a minute that then what we must do as followers of Jesus is find a way to love the loving kindness of God. To what degree do we accept and celebrate and give thanks for the love of God poured out in our lives? Because that act, friends, is an act of mercy. The outpouring of God's love upon us is God's mercy toward us. So the degree to which we're connected with thanksgiving to God's mercy for us impacts our ability to give mercy to others walking humbly with God, and doing justice. So put all the pieces of the puzzle together, even as Dr. Koenig outlined it. To do justice is a call to express mercy to others. Loving kindness, or to love loving kindness, is a call to remember God's act of mercy toward us, God's faithfulness, his chesed. And then finally, to walk humbly. It's to commune with God, and this is what the Israelites were missing. They were trying to do a business arrangement with God. God, we're doing all these terrible things, so how do we make that right? And God is saying, no, no, I need you to walk with me. I need you to stroll alongside me. That, that image of walking comes from Genesis chapter 2 and the story we read of Adam in the garden, walking with the Lord in the garden to be in harmony and communion with God. This is what our life is about. We are not here this morning to do business with God. We are here this morning to give thanks and to celebrate God's chesed toward us and to the world so that we might walk humbly with God and in doing so, we do acts of justice. This isn't linear, it's cyclical, these three things. They spin around and around and around as we do each and every one of them. some questions I want you to wonder about this week. Here they are. Where can you make space today to cultivate the value of mercy? Where can you make space today to cultivate the value of mercy? And then secondly, what role can God, your church, and those close to you have in that cultivation? You know, when we think about these three words, justice, loving, loving kindness, and mercy, I mean, and walking humbly with God, it might be helpful to get some diagnostics. In other words, when you see these things happen, you might want to spend more time with these ideas. So, for example, if you want to display more justice this week, then watch out for the moments in which you're feeling judgmental. Watch out for the moments in which you're just trying to exercise your willpower over things. Watch out for the moments when you're just trying to flex to look like you're strong 
when in fact you may not be. If you're working on giving thanks to God or this uh, loving, loving kindness, if you will, look for the places in your life where you experience entitlement, where you think you just deserve things because, where you try to justify things or, or where perhaps there's an illusion of control in your life, but not really control. If you're wanting to work on walking humbly with God this week, maybe look at the moments in your life when you feel absolutely certain about things, when you feel like you've got it figured out, when you're trying to manage stuff, and when you value information more than transformation. Information more than transformation. Mercy is hard. It's hard. Because mercy and justice are related to each other. It's just like Dr. Koenig said, sometimes we feel like a judge who's just, it cannot be a judge who's merciful. But somehow God is fully just and is completely full of mercy. And so God asks us to hold those things together as well. This week, let's explore what it means to be a merciful people. Hard work that that will be. But that's the work that God gives us. And we're thankful for Jesus that gathers us around this table that we're about to share in Holy Communion. Because this table is an act of mercy toward us, isn't it? Every time we come, we're reminded of God's mercy toward us in Jesus Christ. And that we must go as literal containers of Jesus into the world to offer that same mercy to everyone. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks for mercy. Mercy abundant, a mercy that comes through Jesus Christ. A mercy that we cannot fully explain or understand. For God, we know that we are unworthy of it. But yet we give you thanks for it. Thank you.